Another thing from my past, <coughs> I don't remember how fast exactly, but after we were married, we visited several of the Sword of the Lord conferences on evangelism and, and uh, soul winning. And at the Sword Conference one year, I don't remember, I think it was Dr. Hudson, Curtis Hudson, that was given the message about doing the work of an evangelist, about sharing the gospel every opportunity you got. And the message ended, and during the break, there was a, you know, a little break, and then they got the microphone back up again. There was another message coming, but the microphone came back up again, and Dr. Hudson introduced this old saint, and he was probably around 90 years old, old saint. And the man got up to the microphone and he said, I am retired. I came here after, and he said, 50 years of the Lord's service. And I was going to just relax and enjoy life. But then I heard Dr. Hudson's message. And I'm re-enlisting. <laughs> and he got all excited and the crowd just went wild. You know, the fellow says he's back in the saddle again to serve the Lord because that's what the Bible says to do. There's a good retirement home coming for us, but it's not this side of the grass. You know, it's, it's in heaven. Wonderful group home there called mansions in glory. So the verse in Scripture, verse 3, starts out saying, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. And then if we drop down, we've covered most of these, down to verse 9, he says in the, the second phrase of the verse, as dying, and behold, we live. Paul is giving contrasts here about his ministry and how, in this case, he says, I'm dying, but I'm still alive. And that is uh, kind of astonishing. We could look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where I think it very literally happened to him. He says, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, more or less. I don't know if he was alive still or if he'd gone out of the body. I can't tell. God knows such a man caught up to the third heaven. He's talking about himself. I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. If we look back, and I won't do it for the sake of time, in the book of Acts, We'll discover that on Paul's first missionary journey through Asia Minor, he came to one city, and at the first entrance to the town, the people saw the wonders that they did and the miracles that they did and the preaching that they did, and they said, this Barnabas guy, that's, Ju that's, that's Zeus. That's the, he's a god. And that fellow that's the big mouth, that, that Paul fellow, he must be a god that's the messenger. And they got sacrifices, and they started to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And they realized what they were doing, and they got said, No, 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 we're men like you. We come to preach to you that you get rid of this worthless stuff. And God is not like that. And after they did that, the people of the town dragged Paul outside the city and stoned him to death. I mean, stoning is not something you have and say, Oh, my, that hurt a little. Stoning kills you. And yet the book says he got back up, went into town, and then moved on the next day to go on down the road. And then they, just a short time later, came back and appointed elders in that city as well as in the other ones. They had people trust the Savior and move on. He says, I'm dying, and behold, we live. We can look over 
One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. But in verse 20, Paul is in jail in Rome, writing back to the place where he first went to jail in Philippi. <laughs> so this is a ministry from jail to where he was in jail. And he says this, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, so Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. What does it mean when you magnify something? Makes it look bigger, right? You can see it clearer. Who gets to be seen more clearly by Paul's life? Christ. In Paul's life, in Paul's body, Christ is made easier to see. He says, it's always that. When I'm around, you can see Jesus better. He doesn't say you see me better. And it doesn't matter, he says, if it's by life or by death. In verse 21, my favorite, it says, for to me, to live is Christ. I don't have any other purpose. If I'm in jail in Rome, it's for Christ. If I'm out of jail in Rome, it's for Christ. If I'm in jail in Philippi, it's for Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. It doesn't matter which I do. I live. If I live in the flesh, he says, this is the fruit of my labor. What I shall choose, I, I, I want not. I don't know for sure. I'm in a straight, that's a narrow place, a tight place. I'm in a hard place to make a decision betwixt two. Having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And I've met people who have been so much in pain that that's what they felt about their life. And Paul says, that I hurt a lot. I, I think you might identify with that. If you have ever hurt a lot, then you know how Paul felt here. I said, to depart and to be with Christ is far better. I'm tired of this prison food. There isn't any. I'm tired of this prison air conditioning. There isn't any. I'm tired of all this stuff about prison, and I'm, my body is old and broken. I want to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. I've got to finish this letter and get it off to Philippi. I've got other letters to write. I've got to write a letter to the Hebrews still. Having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Paul says, I'm going to get out of jail and I'm going to come back and see you and you're going to be joyful more because I come back to see you. Paul says, dying that we live. He says, chastened in the next verse, and not killed. We'll look back at it here just for a second. Verse 9 says, chastened and not killed. Sometimes we get beat up. I mean, the word chastening, we think of it as what God does to get disobedient believers obedient again, and yet it, it's simply the word that means beat on, you know, spanked. The, the father that loves his child gets spanked, and Paul says, I'm being hurt. I'm being spanked. And it isn't always God that does it. In verse 17 and 18 of Psalm 118, and this is page 657 if you want to get there quickly in a Schofield Bible, he says, the psalmist says, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me sore. Whoa! But he has not given me over to death. As long as I'm alive, hurting though I may be, I'm going to declare the works of the Lord. Isn't that nice? 
That sounds like a, a motto for those of us as we age and hurt more and sometimes a little more than more. The next contrast there in verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse, uh, we go on to verse 10 now, I think, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. How can that be? Well, it can be because sometimes things hurt, but the result of it could be this person got saved. Sometimes things are exceedingly sad, and the result might be somebody got saved, somebody was blessed, somebody else is lifted up because you went through something hard like Paul did. Sorrowful, always rejoicing, and everything give thanks. This is Thanksgiving week. Some people think it's Christmas already. I notice you jump right from Halloween to Christmas around here. I still want to take some time and think about how thankful I am, and I think you do too. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, Paul gives his testimony very similar here. He says right at verse, verse 30, he says, The Lord shall judge his people. He says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God's people need to behave themselves so God doesn't have to make himself fearsome to them. He says then, call to remembrance the former days. Those early days, and after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of affliction. Paul's encouraging them to remember where they came from when they were saved and what they put up with because they were Christians and Jewish Christians. Partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, they threw you out of the synagogues. They, they said, you're not good Jews anymore. Both by reproaches, that's just bad words, and afflictions, that's where they beat on you. <laughs> and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. They beat on somebody else and you said, hey, that's my friend, and then they beat on you. Verse 34, he says, you had compassion of me in my bonds. I was in prison. I was not free to go. And you loved me and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. You identified with me and they said, well, we'll take your stuff too. Took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Isn't that good? I think he didn't hear Jesus say this to him along the way as the other apostles did, but Jesus said... Lay not up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor, moth nor rust doth corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal. You want a permanent treasure, you've got to put it in heaven. I've looked many times, I've looked at funeral processions, I have never seen a U-Haul trailer hooked to the back of the hearse. You just don't get to take it with you. I did hear a story about a fellow in Texas, rich man in Texas, that had this great big gold Cadillac, and he had a big old cowboy hat, and he had a big old cigar, but he died. He says, I want to be buried in my Cadillac. And so they hooked his Cadillac up to a tow truck, and they sat him up in the front seat and propped him up and put his, somber, his hat on his head and put his cigar in his mouth, and they're dragging him down toward the cemetery to bury him in his gold Cadillac. And there's a, a Texan on the sidewalk that's a little bit under the influence of alcohol. 
and he leans up against the lamppost as that procession goes by, and he looks at that gold Cadillac with the, you know, it had the big longhorn steer on the, on the front end of the hood ornament, and the big sombrero and the big cigar, and he said, man, that's living. No, that wasn't living, that was dying. He'd gone, you know, he didn't have a thing to show for it, just to ride down the street, and then they buried him. I don't know if that applies to anything here or not. But in heaven, you have a better and an enduring substance. Well, The, the next phrase in the verse here in, in chapter 6 and verse 10 says, As poor, yet making many rich. As poor and yet making many rich. We should look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, just a few chapters further down the road here, in verse 9, he says, you know, you know, this is page 1236, it's just a page or two to the right, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, stop for a second, when was Jesus, the Son of God, rich? Not when he was born, they couldn't even afford a place to birth him inside, parents, one's a carpenter, the other one's just a little girl. He wasn't rich in his lifetime. He said to the disciples, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He wasn't well off during this lifetime. He didn't have the treasure of David's son Solomon. He was poor, but he was rich before he came to earth. He had all the riches of heaven. He is God. He's always been God the Son. He became the Son of Man when he was incarnate, when he became a man. He was rich before he came to earth. For your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Paul calls himself poor, but making many rich. What are the riches that we have to share with people? Why, the riches of heaven. You can go to the richest man you know and share the gospel with him, and if he trusts Christ as Savior, he becomes far, far wealthier than he was before. You can go to the poorest, poorest man on the homeless campment and share the gospel with him, and he gets saved, and he is richer than the richest man that doesn't have Jesus. He became poor that you, through his poverty, might be rich. Paul said, I'm poor, but making many rich. You've got the power in your words to enrich anyone who will hear Jesus and believe him. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. Can you imagine how much furniture Paul had? From prison cell to prison cell on a ship shipwrecked. He didn't have a stool. He didn't have a table. He just had a uh, maybe a little bit drier place on the rock floor of the prison cell. Maybe. He's having nothing. But wouldn't you want to be Paul in heaven? Wouldn't you want to be like Paul in heaven? You know, when he said to the Thessalonians, he said, we live if you stand fast in the Lord. What do you mean? He says, you are our crown of rejoicing. When Paul goes to heaven, and he's there now, he keeps on looking at all those people that he led to the Lord, and the people that the people he led to the Lord led to the Lord. 
and the people that he led to the Lord, that led other people to the Lord, that led other people to the Lord. You know, he said to Timothy, he said, the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. This multiplying generation after generation of Christians, if you'd reach, we'd simplify it sometimes, just reach two people in a year. You think you could do that? And then each of the challenge and teach each of those two people to just reach two people the next year. And then you challenge them to teach them to do the same thing. Well, you go from 2 to 4 to 8 to 16 to 32 to 64 to 128. Do you know how far you get in 32 generations or 33 generations? You exceed the population of the earth. You're over 8 billion. It breaks down, but... In, in 32 years, do you think you could reach two people every year and teach them to reach two people every year? Do you think you could do it? We don't get multitudes in heaven by adding. We get multitudes in heaven by multiplying. And it's just amazing arithmetic. Having nothing, possessing all things. Having nothing, but possessing all things. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is just getting all excited. He has taught the gospel from the bad news in chapter 2 and 3 to the good news in chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, and now he's in chapter 8 and summing it all up. In verse 31, he says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, lots of people are against us. What does it mean, who can be against us? Who can succeed against us? Who can be successfully in opposition to what we're doing that God is in favor of. Nobody wins when God's on your side. Nobody wins against you when God is on your side. If God be for us, what does it matter if somebody's against us? And then he talks in verse 32 just how much this means. He that spared not his own son, that's the father giving up the son, that delivered him up for us all, if he did that, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? All things. Paul said, I don't have a thing, but I have everything. Having Jesus, joint heirs with Christ, there's nothing in the universe that isn't his, and we're with him. You know? You ever been in a line and somebody you're with, you can't get in, but they can? But you say, I'm, I'm with him, and he says, he's, he's with me. Come on in. I'm with him. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Well, that is the last of these phrases in Paul's list of what I call recruiting. Just challenges. Things what somebody says, I don't know if I want that. Well, this is what you get if you approve yourself like I did in the ministers of God. Patient, you have to have patience, afflictions, necessities, that's where you don't have food, distresses, they're pressing on you, stripes, they're beating you, imprisonments, riot, tumult, rioting, work, staying awake, staying without food, with pureness, by knowledge. Oh, you got to be long-suffering. You have to be kind by the Holy Ghost. By love unfeigned. You don't get to pretend to love people. You get to love them the way Jesus loved them. 
by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, honor and dishonor, evil report and good report, deceivers and yet true, unknown and yet well-known, dying, but we live chastened, not killed, sorrowful, always rejoicing, poor, but making many rich, having nothing, possessing all things. And then he says in verse 11, listen up, Corinthians. Oh, ye Corinthians. You know how you spell that Greek word, oh? Oh. <laughs> it's just like it is in English. Oh, you Corinthians. Our mouth is opened unto you. We're talking to you. <laughs> Our heart is enlarged. We're just overflowing with what we want for you. All this that we just described, that we have, we want it for you. Verse 12, you are not straightened in us, but you are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense of the same, I speak as unto my children, be you also enlarged. What's he saying? He's saying in a heart enlarged, an increasing wideness or breadth of sympathy. This is how Paul ministers. He just, you see something hard, you just open your heart a little bit bigger to take care of it. <coughs> I had a stupid dream last night. I was going to a place with people from our church, and I had purchased two meals. <laughs> and for some reason in my dream, one of my friends in the church had come in along behind me, and he said, someone stole my plate. So I gave him one of my two meals. And then I saw a little old lady from our church who didn't have a meal either, so I gave her my other one. Then my wife got mad at me. because It was a dream. But that's the idea. When a, when a situation comes up and you've got a way to deal with it, you don't hide in the corner or duck under. You just open your heart a little bit wider. Increase the breadth of sympathy. This is how Paul ministers. It's how he wants the Corinthians to get. He says, be you also enlarged. Be you also enlarged. I'd like you to look back at Psalm 119. It's, page, it's the next chapter over from Psalm 118. And in verse 32, you have to know the verse number because in Psalm 119, there's 176 of them or something. But verse 32, Paul says this, 119.32, page 658, I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. Oh, he prayed, God, just make my heart that much bigger, make me a little bit wider, so I'm, I'm not narrow-minded, narrow-hearted. I'll run the way of thy commandments. You make my heart big enough. I'll seek those opportunities. I'll run them down. I will. That's a good thing. In 2 Corinthians 12, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, toward the end of the chapter, we glanced at this chapter earlier, but a little further down in it. Verse 15, this I believe is page 1239, Paul said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. He says, I'm not keeping score. I'll just give what I got and then give some more. And if I run out, I'll still give some more. I'll go out and work and give some more. I'll spend and be spent for you. Corinthians, this is what I want for you. Even if the more I love you, the less I be loved. Can you imagine his, 
He's not yelling at them in this letter. He's recruiting them. He wants them to know how good his life is. He says back in chapter 6, he says, you're straightened, your, your heart is narrow, in verse 12, in your own body, it's in your own situation. It's not us that's squeezing you in. It's you. And he says, now, I just want you to get this. You get enlarged the way I'm enlarged. Get it? Your love is contracted. You're straightened in your own bowels. Your love is in a tight place. He said, get wider. Get wider. In 1 John chapter 3, this is page 1324. In 1 John chapter 3, Paul, Paul's not going to say a thing because this is 1 John, but in 1 John chapter 3, everybody likes 316 verses, and this is right after that, so we'll read 316 first. Hereby perceive we, this is how we can see, the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. Everybody said, Amen. Oh, that's how we know God loves us. Do you see the rest of the verse? And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Most people, most people would say, well, for my spouse or someone like that, I would, I'd willingly die. You know what doesn't ask you to die for them? It says lay down your life. Yeah. How do you lay down your life for someone? A moment at a time, a minute at a time, an hour at a time. You go to a shopping mall and meet strangers and share the gospel with them. You go to a football game and meet people you don't know and make them your brother by sharing the gospel, the love of Christ with them. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You do that by uh, making wonderful meals for the church on Sunday. You do that by leading the choir. You do that in all kinds of ways. Verse 17 says, Whoso has this world's good, some of us do, and sees his brother have need, Ooh, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him. Got that narrow heart problem again. How dwelleth the love of God in him? I would point out it does not say he doesn't have the love of God. It just says it doesn't dwell in him very well. Right, right poorly is the answer to that question. How dwells the love of God in him? Rather poorly. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I'm reminded of what James said in chapter 2. If one of you see your brother or sister that's naked or starving and hungry, and you say, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, nevertheless you give them not the things that are needful to them. Well, that's kind of stupid. <laughs> let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed or in truth. Along that same lines, 1 Peter chapter 3, page 13, 14, it's not just Paul, it's not just John. Peter has this same idea. How can you, would it be? Verse 8, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, here's his summation, be ye all. He's just been talking to husbands and wives and wives and husbands and servants and masters. He says, finally, all of you. Be single-minded, be of one mind, think the same way. And this is the way to think, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful, 
be courteous. Now, we use pitiful in a different way today. We say, man, that's pitiful. But we don't mean we pity them in, in a good, constructive way. We just mean that's miserable. They're just not doing any good at all. My daughter, who's in heaven now, would listen to a quartet or something like that and hear the bass singer going real low and real low, and I can't do it. But she'd hear that, and she'd say, I don't know why she said this, but she said, that's pitiful. <laughs> so now once in a while, my wife and I will hear something like that, and we'll say, that's, that's what it said, that's pitiful. <laughs> but we're supposed to be pitiful, full of pity and full of courtesy, loving as brethren. Now, some of you, with a good family you came up in, Love your brothers and your sisters. Personally, when I saw the scripture that said that you're supposed to treat the younger women in the church as sisters, I thought that meant you're supposed to pull their hair and tease them unmercifully. That's just what I, th I thought. That's how you treat your sisters. But it isn't what it means. Love as brothers. Love as brothers should love. And you might do something for your brother you wouldn't do for a stranger. Well, we're supposed to love the brethren as brethren. We're all in the family of God. Be pitiful, be full of pity, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil. But he did me wrong. Uh, it's a wrong-headed thing to say, I don't get mad, I get even. I know it's the American way, but it's wrong-headed. That part of the Marine Corps environment I did not buy into. Not rendering evil for evil. Don't do them the way they did you. Not railing for railing. Don't talk at them the way they talked about you. Contrarywise, blessing both in your deeds and in your mouth. When somebody does you wrong, bless them. That's what you're called to do. You'll get a blessing from God if you bless your enemies. Jesus said that, didn't he? Bless them that despitefully use you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Bless them that curse you. That's what it says. I don't know. I didn't write it. It's in the Bible. In James chapter 5, one more place in this same line of thought, loving widely. In James chapter 5, verse 11, page 1310. Behold, we count them happy, which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord. What? The Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now, the Lord is not pitiful in the sense of, boy, that's miserable. He's not. He's pitiful. He's full of pity and of tender mercy. And we're supposed to be like that. That's the end. That's the goal. That's what the, the Lord's target is, to be very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now, I'm a little confused about the phrase at the beginning of this verse, you have heard of the patience of Job. I've read the book of Job. I don't remember him being patient very often. I remember him getting miserable and complaining about it through and through and through until he came to the end and God said, by the way, slap, 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 as far as what right you have to complain about things I do. And then he says, uh, I agree, I don't have a word to say, thank you very much. But then God said to Job's three friends, you said things about him that were not right and you better he's going to pray for you and then you'll be made whole and Job had to do what God wanted him to do 
So you, we've heard about Job and what he went through. He had to endure, and that's all that James 5.11 is referring to. We count them happy which endure. By the end of the book, all the things Job had lost, he had back double, except his wife. He didn't lose his wife, so he still had just the one wife. But he had three boys and ten girls, no, three girls and ten boys in heaven, and he had three girls and ten boys on the earth. He had double as many camels and asses, and uh, I, I forget what else he had. But he had twice as much wealth on the earth when the Lord restored him. And the daughters were the most pretty girls in the whole world, they called them. One of the names was Hepzibah. If you're looking for a baby name there, there you go. It really means beautiful girl. All right. We have a few more minutes, so we're going to go on in, in, first, in, in Second Corinthians here. He said at the end of this phrase, I speak as unto my children. Now, Paul did not actually father children in Corinth that we know about. I don't think he did. He wasn't married when he was there. So what's he talking about? Well, he uses this idea of spiritual fathers and spiritual children in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is uh, page 1215. He says, as he is yelling at them in 1 Corinthians, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Verse 15, he says, Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. He says, you're saved because of my ministry. Maybe some of them were saved through the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila or Apollos. But Paul says, I've taken the position of father to all of you. So I beseech you, be ye followers of me. I'm like your father. Follow me. I'm warning you. Don't, don't think I'm shaming you. I'm warning you. I want you to grow up successfully. And he says something like that in Galatians chapter 4 as well. He says this over page uh, 1246. He says, it's a good thing, verse 18, to be zealously affected always in a good thing. Just get excited, zealously affected. It's a word that means boiling hot. To be zealously affected always in a good thing, not just when I'm there with you. Sometimes we get excited about the Lord's work only when there's an exciting preacher getting us excited. But then in verse 19, he says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you and now and change my voice. I am a little worried about you. The Galatians had been influenced by other teachers, and he was concerned about that. He used that same idea in 1 Thessalonians, about the Thessalonian believers. Page 1268, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11, he says, You know, you know, well, I'll start in verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also, how holily, and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children. I want to talk about that word exhorted again just for a minute. I've said it before. It's often translated exhorted, but it is the word paraclete. It's the verb form of the comforter that Jesus said he would send. 
It means he encouraged them. There's not a better way to translate this word than encourage. We encouraged and comforted and charged every one of you the way a father does his children that we would walk worthy. You would walk worthy of God who's called you into his kingdom and glory. You know, the words elect or chosen or called are used through and through in the New Testament not about who's going to be saved, but about what the saved will do for God, about service. And he says, walk worthy of God. God called you to service into his kingdom and glory in his kingdom. Don't think of, he called me to be saved. I'm one of the, no, 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 no. Called to serve. For this cause also, thank we God without ceasing, because you received the word of God as the word of God. Now we got... To close up here shortly, just a few minutes, I want to look at one more passage in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, and verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, there's John calling the believers children, my little children, these things write I unto you, the things he just wrote in chapter 1 about confessing sins and all. If they say they didn't sin, they were lying. I write these things unto you that you sin not. Don't sin. (laughs) In the same breath, he says, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Do you know that word we just looked at that said um, exhorted? This is the noun form of that same word. This is paraclete, just like Jesus called the comforter in John's Gospel. We have an advocate, a comforter, somebody called alongside to help us, an attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When do we need that? Because we sin. But Jesus paid for our sin on the cross. Yeah, but we still sin, and it messes up our relationship with God. And when we sin, we have somebody standing with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he looks at me and he says, he looks at the Father and he says, I saw what Bob did, but Father, he's with me. And verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. For the believers, Jesus is the advocate for us when we sin after salvation. But it's the truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, right there again in 1 John 2, 2. Talking about the Father sending the Son. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here's us with our sin on us. And it says in 1 John 2, 2, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, the believers, but for the sins of the whole world. John three sixteen says, God so loved the world sin and all, that he gave his only begotten son. That's not Christmas. That's the cross where Jesus, who never sinned, took my sin on himself. And verse 2 says, the sins of the whole world and satisfied God. And then it says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We're in the righteousness of Jesus Christ when we have believed in him. He's already satisfied God for our sins. For the sins of the whole world, but not everybody in the whole world goes to heaven. 
Only those who believe in Jesus have the righteousness of God put to their account, receive the gift of eternal life, the gift of salvation, the gift of the righteousness of God put to their account. It's by believing in him, and that's the truth. Well, Father in heaven, thank you so much for the attentive group this morning that has listened to your word, and we do pray that each of us will remember what we've heard, understand what we've heard, and when we come out against lost people or believers that are messed up, we'll have your word to help them. Our heart will not be made narrow, but it'll be broadened and widened to fit appropriately into every circumstance where we can love as brethren. Our hearts will be widened, not straightened. Our hearts will be enlarged as we're in contact for you by the power of the Holy Spirit for lost people. In Jesus' name.